humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 386, and I had a conversation with Nick Buda. Nick is a producer and drummer in Nashville, Tennessee. He was born in South Africa, but came to the U.S. as a kid. He tours with Kenny Chesney and has worked with dozens and dozens of artists, including megastars Taylor Swift, Dolly Parton, Lionel Richie, and Martina McBride, but so many more. Oh my gosh, the list goes on and on and on. We talked about his childhood, his career, family, his connection to the creator of Marvel's Thanos, and so much more. Nick and I have been friends for a really long time, and I'm so happy we finally were able to be in the same place at the same time. We connected at a gig in Denver and met up at the hotel, and we recorded this on an iPhone. Shout out iPhone. Uh, Here's hoping the Swifties will hear this episode and share it far and wide. In other news, I am playing this Saturday in Santa Monica, California. If anybody is in the vicinity of that, I will be playing The Crow, 8 p.m. I have an opening set for the comedy show that night. So that'll be a lot of fun, dusting off the guitar and doing a little live set. Come on down if you want to at The Crow. It's in Bergamont Station. All right, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your music. My last record is All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. You can find it everywhere. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Be well, be kind, be love. Here we go. Nick Buda, welcome to Hey Human. All right. Happy to be a part of Hey Human. (laughs) This is cool. We've talked about this for a while. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. here you are. Here I am. Yeah. On the road again. I like I like that we're doing it in person. Yeah, that there's is been, good. There's been a lot of Zoom yeah. uh, type interviews, and it works too, but it's nice in person. Do you get interviewed a lot? Uh, I mean, not a lot, but it, it happens. It happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mostly music stuff, though. Different types of either drummer or, mus- obviously music related, but mostly yeah. drummer-focused podcasts, which... That's that thing. I'm psyched to be doing one that's not as particularly focused on drums, more human. That's yeah, right. although yeah, yeah. we will cover drums. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll get a beat on that. Ah, see what I did there? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a good drum pun. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I was born in Cape Town in South Africa and uh, lived there till I was uh, 12 and a half or so. And how was life growing up in South Africa? In the time without you know me knowing anymore it was great we had a beautiful place on the side of a mountain cape town's absolutely beautiful so you know but the the views over the ocean were obviously taken for granted because that's all i ever knew you know I was zipping down to the beach and playing with the dogs on the sand and not just like the beach but the, some of the most beautiful beaches i mean just incredible my grandmother lived on the other side of the mountain so uh, my mom was a uh, in the sort of fashion design world she was a buyer for a um, sort of a, let's say, a Gap-style clothing store in South Africa. And um, so my grandmother would pick me up from school, and I'd go and hang with her for the afternoons. We'd play cards. We'd have tea time at 4 o'clock, you know, was, you know all the Fancy. stuff. And then my mom would pick me up at 5 or 5.30, and we'd go around to the other side of the mountain to where we lived. Do you have siblings? No. 
okay, only child. Yeah. What was apartheid still a big deal? Apartheid was very much a big deal. Yeah. I didn't know so much about it as a kid. My mom uh, is still very political, but at the time, I was very anti everything that was going on over there. Um, The um, oppression of the black and colored community in a country where they were by far the majority was terrible and disgusting and and it was ultimately the reason why we left but as a kid i didn't i didn't i wasn't so aware of that it's not like i'm i don't know that i was necessarily around a lot of black or mixed scenarios so to say but it's but it wasn't something i didn't find it unusual either i think a lot of anyway i I, yeah i don't know about all that but i do know that there were days that we would not go to school like school would be closed because it was and i would just be happy school was closed but it was because it would be like let's say the anniversary of a a black leader that had been killed and they were concerned about marches and potential violence and things like that so they would just not have school that day was school segregated some schools were definitely segregated. Um, the school I went to wasn't particularly... I um, went to a Jewish school, Jewish. So I went to a Jewish school growing up in Cape Town. So there just weren't a lot of black people there. <laughs> but yeah. but it wasn't... But I think I've known like three Jewish black people. That's there. right. <laughs> that's right. And in South Africa, they probably were there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was general... There wasn't like a, a strong divide segregation there. But there was a most definite um, economic seg- segregation where... You know, black kids weren't allowed to go to school a lot of times. Um, they were, or, or they were put in a position where they weren't able to. Yeah, apartheid was a, a terrible thing, you know. And so once the biggest sanctions started coming down in South Africa because of apartheid from uh, America and the rest of the world, the future was bleak for South Africa. There were a lot of uh, big international companies that were pulling out and all that sort of stuff. And um, Took them long enough? Took them long enough. No, it's exactly right. It took a pressure, like the big pressure of everything before any one company actually bailed on it. You know what I mean? And at that time, everybody was leaving. Um, and they were either going to Australia or England, which were a lot of times the easier places to move. As far as, um, you know, being able to take your stuff and actually be... Like, the United States, A, is very far, and B, you know, everything's 110 volt here as opposed to 220. So, like, you really were literally packing a bag and then starting again. And most people... Oh, that's weird. I wouldn't think about that. Yeah. Electricity is completely you're not You're not moving your house. You're literally... Like, furniture, maybe, but that's about it, you know? So... Um, and that's just not worthwhile. You just get new stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, we actually ended up doing that. We we, we shipped our stuff over here when we moved. Um, couches and tables and stuff. But even then, not very much. We sold off a lot of it. Because when we moved... Everybody was trying to move. Most people were so sort of tied to a certain lifestyle that they had in South Africa. Of course, you had nannies help around, you know, that were mostly black because the wages were so inexpensive like I mean anybody could afford that and so you know these families were all of a sudden moving to like let's say England that that help was now a lot more expensive you know as it should be and a lot of a lot of families just felt like well that's not worth it I'll deal with apartheid and kind of turn the other cheek because I like having my lifestyle done for me and my lifestyle whatever. I mean I think that's you know? true of a lot of uh, oppressive <clears throat> situations right is that folks think oh okay well it's not really happening to me it's happening around me and i'm benefiting even if i don't believe these things yeah i'm benefiting from other people's oppression so right. i'm gonna stick around and i don't know you know i mean i think that there's those views as as well as views of like well i don't like the fact that this country that i love is is seems to be going over a cliff so i'm gonna get out now but then there's the 
but it's really beautiful here. And, you know, maybe I can just make it work. And and literally, like, uh, most of the people I knew that had tried to leave around then, within a year, six months to a year, they, they were back again because it was just easier to be back. And also, change comes from within. Yeah. As well. So if everybody who wants to things to be better and to do better leave who's left to do better and be better yeah well there was that i i don't know and now granted i was too young at the time to really have a a a bigger concept about what was going on but but from what i have learned and looking back at it it feels like there were those that said i will not stand for this this is not the the country that i want to live in or the the environment that i want to be in my mom was one of those you know i mean we it was a struggle to come to the states um and change our lifestyle a, a thousand percent you know but my mom was so uh she believed so strongly in what we were doing that there was just that we were not going to be going back there was just whatever happened we weren't coming back you know yeah and um and and i i I wish I could commend, there's not enough to commend her on, on that because I know how, in, again, I didn't necessarily understand at the time because she hid a lot of it from me. I was, you know, that was when I was like 13, 14, those early years, whatever, teenage years. And I, I was pissed at a lot of the things I didn't get to do, but, I, but not aware of why necessarily I couldn't and also not aware of how difficult moving to a new place so far away from anything, you know. Not, and everyone. Yeah, and everyone. And the way that we moved to at the time, you know, in order to get a green card, that was like a six, seven-year process, you know, and, and the, um, you know, the, it's even, I think it's even worse now. But um, in those days, and, and my mom was not prepared to sit around and wait. And if I had turned 18, in the, in that era, if I had turned 18 in, in South Africa, I would have had to join the Army, and she was not going to have that. Oh, I didn't know that South Africa is a required... It did then. Mm-hmm. It, I don't think it does anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of countries do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we just took off. Um, did your grandmother go as well? No, my grandmother stayed in Cape Town. She had, obviously, my mom's younger brother was still there, and other family cousins' stuff was still there. And I think she felt, too, that, like... She also very much disagreed with what was going on, but she was involved sort of in the... <laughs> Not in the fight, but like in 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 sort of like projects. She was a part of this group that raised money for schools for black kids, and so she was she was sort of a part of that. And her life was there, and and yeah, she wasn't going to move. She's much older. Yeah, and my dad actually, uh, my mom and dad split up when I was a very little kid, and and so my dad also stayed. Um, his life was there. I mean, his business was a lot more um, internationally more international dealings and and Cape Town was more of his base than anything else but but so so my dad was still there my grandmother was still there you reference black people and colored people when you say colored you mean people of color or is that a delineation in South Africa is that something South African colored people are the what when the white people came and and got together with like however you know it wasn't always pleasant the 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 rape and pillaging scenario but uh, but uh, yeah exactly but uh, are you going to the rape and pillage tonight yeah yeah that's right i mean and and obviously and it's funny too when i was a kid in south africa when we had when we learned about history in south africa and we learned about jan van riebeck was the guy that that founded south africa you know he, he sailed down from the netherlands and 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 that's how South Africa was born, you know. And then completely uh, ignoring the indigenous folks. Oh, completely! Like that Sounds wasn't familiar. that was that was not a part of our history at all as a kid growing up there, you know. And then when I was he- in Nashville, once we'd moved, 
and I was in high school, and my senior year, there was an African history option class, you know, and I thought, oh, well, my senior year, let me take this because I'm just going to breeze through it because I already know all this stuff. And I was, my mind was blown. Even at like, you know, what, 17 or however old I was at that point, I still hadn't gone back, you know, I mean, I'd, we had moved. I, now, now I'm an American kid in a school here and all this sort of stuff, and I ha- did not understand that there was history that I had not been taught that had been, you know, um, omitted from those classes. And it kind of blew my mind. And so that, uh, yeah, that, so that was, that was a big lesson. <laughs> and I know it happens a lot, but it's like, yeah. when it happens to you, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe my whole life. I thought that this was how it went. And there was a whole area before that. And exactly what happened once, Jan, Re- Jan van Riebeck was not the hero, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> and which is obviously how it, I, it had been taught to me, you know, sure. so yeah. American history is no different. That's no, no. Kind of our vibe well, here. and I mean, you want to go down that road today. I mean, and they're trying to make it even more <laughs> bad. Know. Which is despicable, but it anyway, is despicable. Yeah, yeah. I agree. How was uh, your your Jewishness growing up there? How was that? Were people uh, did you get lumped into a particular part of town as well? No, not really. I had friends that were Jewish and not Jewish, um, but it, there, but there was a very strong Jewish community in Cape Town, and so I didn't. Again, I'm not. I'm not a particularly religious person. I do. I love the faith. I love the. Um, the traditions around the Jewish tradition. Yeah, it's great, you know. And so, and I was raised very much like that. Yeah. Like we were raised, <laughs> we would have these big family dinners for uh, over the Jewish holidays. But instead of doing like going through like the whole service at home, we'd have like my grandmother would set up the big table. We would all be there, all, and you know whatever. And we would have like the abridged version. Like <laughs> you do this. There's a song here. You do this little quick little thing, you know, and like amen, and then you go straight to the <laughs> straight to the food, you know. <laughs> And there was certain services too, like where there was. Uh, oh God, I'm testing my Jewish knowledge here. But but there was there was service where at the end of the service the kids would get candy, chocolate or something, and my grandmother would take me for like the last 15 minutes of the like we would sneak in the back of the shul and you know. So uh, now That's that, now that I have a daughter that just turned seven, I'm. I really want to start getting back into that stuff just so that she Heritage. knows those stories. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah. I think it's really great. I yeah. get that. Well, last night I said, oh, it's Yom Kippur. You went, oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> well, we should toast on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, well, the thing about being Jewish, right, there's a, there's being culturally Jewish and That's then right. there's being religiously Jewish. Yeah. And, and sometimes those two paths cross and sometimes they don't. Completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. How was the culture shock of coming to the U.S. aside from realizing yeah. you didn't know anything about your own country? Oh, well, yeah. No, thankfully that didn't all happen at the same time. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was heavy. You know, I moved. So we moved in um, August. My birthday's in March. So I was like, I was literally like 12 and a half. And, uh, and I, you know, when, when we first found out that we were leaving South Africa, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because we were coming to America. And back, and back then America was like the land of dreams like you know the 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 just the, all the all the things you can imagine like essentially like living going to live in Disney World you know and and it's funny a year before me a girl had moved to the states with her parents i think they moved to Atlanta and i remember thinking man that is just so cool it would be so amazing 
I wonder where she is. Jane Robbie was her name. I'll never forget. So anyway, Jane, if you're listening. Jane, if you're listening, give me a call. So the year later, we were moving, and I thought it was so cool. And, and all my friends thought I was so cool. And I was not – I was a very shy kid. And I didn't – like, my best friend when I was at that age was the super cool kid. And I was definitely in the shadows and, like, did my own thing or whatever. So all of a sudden, I was like, wow, it's so cool. Nick's moving to America. How cool is that? And then, like, days before we were leaving, I realized, oh, wait – I'm leaving everybody I know here and everything I know here. And so it was sort of exciting. And it was the first realizations of, oh, this isn't going to be so easy. And then when we got to the States, um, it was only weeks before I was going to have to start school. And we had no idea where I was going to school. And so thankfully, um, we found this great school in Nashville called the University School in Nashville. Because my mom had heard nothing but uh, nightmare stories about uh, public schools in the States. And and back then, pre-internet, all that we had to go on was movies, right? And we saw these movies where, like, in the high schools, drug deals are happening and all these other things. Mom was like, you're not going to one of those schools, <laughs> you know? So so she found about out about this great liberal arts, K-12, through and somehow I got in and thank goodness it's a phenomenal school it's, it's incredible well, and my daughter goes, my same. daughter goes there now yeah, okay. you know? yeah. and um, it's, it's I will say thank goodness for that and music because it was such a um, it was such a great environment um, the relationship with the teachers was so great for me being still like I was still pretty shy and I had an extremely strong accent some people couldn't understand me a lot of people just wanted me to talk and I was really shy and didn't know where I fit in or anything like that it took a year. It took a year of me not being so happy about things and occasionally really hating things to finally feel like I may have a footing or may fit in somewhere, you know? So that was seventh grade, which is, I mean, it's tough grade anyway. For kids that age, it's like you question everything. Like every little thing is the biggest thing it can be, yeah, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And uh, I, I, had a, I had a hard time. Yeah. yeah. But I played music and I met friends doing that. And it's it, through eighth grade, had a little band, had, you know, all those, and that kind of helped, f- helped me find the my people. Always in, in drums? That thing. Yeah, always, I just, I always, I've played drums since, but I was hitting on things before I was playing drums, I was, it's just always been in me, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What happens after high school? So, you know, I played all the way through high school and then decided, in my senior year of high school, I went to go see Sting. In, and it's funny because even in my senior year, my senior book or whatever, the, the high school book, that it says somewhere, like a quote from me saying, like, I met Sting or whatever, which is funny to think about. But I did get to meet him at the show that he was at through a friend of a friend. And in that meeting, I, I met um, his drummer at the time, Vinny Caliuta, who well, I was a huge, huge fan of. And we talked about the Berkeley School of Music. And I already knew about that. And I knew that I wanted to keep playing drums. And that was a one avenue to be able to do that. And then Vinny was, uh, you know, uh, was a huge influence and was, you know, talking so highly about Berkeley. So I was like, okay, well, that's where I'm going. So I took a semester off after high school because we were still not legal. Like we were still living under the radar 100% for the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so they didn't even know you were really in the country? Um, they didn't know that, and by they, like the The authorities that would care. Yeah, no, they they would not have known um, because... You were an illegal, an illegal immigrant. I was an illegal alien, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. immigrant. I yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You were yeah. all the. Things. But the thing is, we, we haven't, we hadn't really even immigrated yet. Like we were, we were completely just sitting under the radar, waiting for that paperwork to come through so we could get a green card. Interesting. And and that meant 
not being able to do certain like I love driving I love cars and I couldn't wait till I turned 16 to drive but certain things had to happen before I could get my license and it was it wasn't that long they, I don't know how they were able to work it out I don't know all the details but it was a couple of months that I was like why is this such and not even under with a bigger enough scope to be able to understand hey there are bigger things in, at work here just be happy that everything's you did know. your mom have a job during that whole time she would work little side jobs and stuff for people and getting paid under the table and stuff i've like interviewed uh people that don't have green cards that are living in this country uh quote unquote illegally whatever that means yeah. for a human being to yeah. be illegal in it, the country well yeah yeah but uh <laughs> and uh, they use things like fake social security they still pay taxes they do all the yeah. things that are regu- probably more so because yeah. they're trying so desperately not to get caught yeah I mean, most of my friends who were born here do everything they can to not pay all their to taxes. To not pay the taxes. That's right. That's right. Well, it's funny. I remember us getting Social Security cards, but it said not for hire or can't be, you know, whatever it is. You know, I don't know if that system still exists or, or how it works. I mean, yeah, I honestly, know. after 9-11, everything changed. And, and if 9-11, if we wouldn't have been able to do what we did sure. had it been after It's also incredibly expensive to become a citizen of the United it's States. It's very expensive, yeah. And thankfully, you know, so we were able to pay for all that, I mean, in South Africa, um, as opposed to in the States. I mean, we were living on very little amounts of money as a result. My dad had actually helped find a way for us to be able to get some money over beyond just money that you could travel on because I mean you're not expected when you come on vacation somewhere you're not expected to be paying rent and groceries and all that sort of stuff and that's we were very limited in what we could do over months and months so my mom we were living we were living like refugees not necessarily actually being refugees but you know I mean very much on bare minimums you know were you on scholarship then at school you know I I, and I keep this is one of those things I keep forgetting to actually find out about there was some sort of a visa scenario that allowed money to come through to be able to pay for the school you know it was that kind of thing but i give again credit to my mom you know university school every year would ask for that paperwork that they would need to have and every year my mom would say oh the lawyers are working on i'm working on it i'll you know i'll get it to you and and as long as i i mean i was a good kid and i didn't didn't give them a lot of reason to have to question so they just kind of university school kind of no, like not throwing way. anybody under the bus, but kind of look the well, other I mean, way. Yeah, you know, it's been a, it's been a long time, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, and I, remember and I, them when the alumni. That's right. Oh, trust me, <laughs> trust me. I do <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so we were we were very fortunate to have gotten by as we did, you know, and and it, and it came out great on the other side. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, it took a long time. Like we had green cards for a long time, and then uh, finally I applied for citizenship. Just, yeah, for whatever reason. And then got it. So, yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. After the gap year, you go to Berkeley? So, yeah, I took a, actually just took a semester, semester off because we had to go back to Cape Town to now get green cards. So, because now we were, now it was time to have those meetings and blah, blah, blah. So I took a semester. We were down there for like two months or something like that. And, and did the interview at the embassy, which was a little ridiculous because now I had an American accent. <laughs> like, it was obvious we had been in the States, but, yeah. You kind of have an American <laughs> Yeah. When we were hanging out last night, I could hear you it could as, hear a little as, bit. The, as the alcohol went up. The yeah, <laughs> the accent came, came out. out. <laughs> yeah, that can happen. Yeah. So, and yeah, and then I went back and I went to Berkeley because I would never have gotten into Berkeley without having a green card or, you know, at least. Sure. Yeah, I started there in, in January of that next year, and... I was there for uh, about three years. I kind of went through the summers because right at that time that I was that I went to 
up to Boston, my mom and my aunt, her younger sister, who's a singer-songwriter, moved up to Woodstock, New York. Debbie was going to be going down to the city to do gigs and working with a couple of really big writers up there, big, big famous artists. And so my mom moved up there with her, and um, I was in Boston. Hmm. Yeah. I hear that the folks that don't graduate from Berkeley are the ones that tend to be the most successful because they... I graduated. Get, oh, you did? I actually did. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I know so many... <laughs> I know what you're saying. Though. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right. A they lot get of, plucked out. A, a lot of times they either get plucked out or the ones that just end up staying there and graduating maybe don't have the, I don't know, the path, the vision, the... the it's a lot, you know, to do to do this thing. So, but I happened to be up there and I was touring with bands around New England and I was doing a lot of recording stuff at Berkeley, like the, you know, midnight to six film scoring project or whatever in the, in the whatever studio at Berkeley, come out to find my car had been towed. I've got class at nine, you know, 10 or something, you know, that's a real musician. That was college life right there. That was Dick musician college life. Absolutely. If you, so, if you haven't had your car towed as a musician, oh are you God. really a musician? Well, and then a particularly musician in Boston between booting and towing, oh, it's okay. like a, that's the norm, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it just so happened because I stayed up there through the summers, I was within a semester or two or something of graduating. And I was kind of, thinking of doing something else my mom was like you know you're there you're busy you're doing all the stuff just do it just finish the thing get the whatever even if you never use it you're you're already in line to be getting it so i did yeah yeah yeah. what was your first big break boy i don't know if i can it's hard to one of two things when i was in high school here i had done a surprise party with my band at the time for this girl whose uh, parents, wa- a guy named Mac Gaden, who co- co-wrote uh, Everlasting Love and, you know, big songs. Everlasting Love, you know, like super, that and, and a couple of other, not as big, but still big hits. Mac really liked how I played. And this, I was in, uh, you know, eighth grade. Oh, no, 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 what I'm talking about, 10th grade or something like that. So then around my senior year, as I was graduating high school, he hired me to go on the road with him. So I went out with him. I was by far the youngest guy in the band. I was 16, 17 um, when I first started doing gigs with him, and everybody else was at least more than twice my age. You know, And I got to work with some actual, I found out afterwards, Nashville heavyweights. And at the time, I had no idea. A guy named Tom Rohde, who unfortunately has passed away, but great percussionist who was on the road and, and it's a funny story so <laughs> I was watching TV one night uh, this James Taylor concert came on and there's Tom Rohde in the back playing percussion I'm like what that's the guy that I played with with Matt Gaten I didn't know he did played with James Taylor of whom I'm a huge fan of anyway so that kind of thing happened all the time and so I actually missed my uh, graduation party because I was doing a gig with Mac at this place called 328 Performance Hall in Nashville, old school joint. It's not there anymore. I um, remember that place. Yeah. I saw and, Steve Earle there. Oh, yeah. Who played for nine hours, I think. Really? Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he plays a long time. When yeah, he yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, that was one break was getting to do stuff with Mac and, and those kind of musicians when I was so young and so learning. You know what I mean? I cannot imagine... I mean, that's a child. Right? Very I can't imagine yeah. what, how quickly you were forced to grow up in those parameters. Yeah, the things you probably saw. Well, there's so many, so many funny things happen. So the bass player was a guy named Byron House, who's just 
awesome and uh, I really love that guy and, and he was a guy that told me we were rehearsing in my in my like my mom's in our house we were rehearsing with Mac and that band for some of these shows and we were playing Everlasting Love and I had no idea that Mac wrote that tune at that point and so Mac's talking to somebody else in the band and Byron's right next to me and I'm like man of all the songs that we would cover why is he doing this one and Byron's like because he wrote it <laughs> it was a, and that talk about a Nashville That's thing a Nashville right thing, sure. so at 17 I was like okay I understood that one and then he also told me a couple of different ways to play like accent the ride and stuff while we're playing I was just I was a rock guy and the high school band you know all of a sudden I'm playing with these big dudes wow. you know so there's some neat little lessons from that I would say that was that break. And I think the the next break that kind of got me started in my sort of professional whatever road was getting hired to play with Colonel Bruce Hampton out of Atlanta. And Bruce was... An actual colonel? No, no. He got the name, oh man, like some other... I can't remember. Like he, he, his life was like the chicken guy. Colonel was Sanders. wrapped in mystery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of. And he, uh, he was a... Yeah, and I'd been a huge fan of his when I was in high school playing along with... He had a band called Aquarium Rescue Unit that was, amongst players, was just the shit. I feel like I've heard of that band. They were just killing. All the players were just amazing, and they were based out of Atlanta. And then... Atlanta uh, had some great bands. Really Georgia great put players. out some great music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I got to... I moved to Atlanta. Like, I got done with college and about, a, you know, maybe a year later or something like that, I moved... Oh, a couple years later. I moved to Atlanta and was playing with Colonel Bruce. And that was a big... That was big because I got to play with so many of my heroes on stage. I mean, because everybody loved Bruce. So he was like the, the godfather of the sort of jam band hippie hmm. scene. So whether it was the guys from the Almond Brothers or we played with Little Feet a bunch. And so, like, me and Richie Haywood would do, like, the double drummer thing. And I grew up playing with Little Feet records and all that stuff. So that was that was kind of a big... That was a big deal. And and I learned... Berkeley was my school, school, and Bruce was my real-life road school. I learned a lot in the two or two and a half years or whatever that I was playing with him. Did you have a lot of American and I assume UK band influence living in South Africa then? How did you get your music? And what was your first album you bought? Mm. <laughs> well, the first album I bought was, well, I should say it was definitely the first CD. Oh, the first tape I remember was Twisted Sister. Come out and play. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but the first CD I remember buying was Living Color. Uh, that uh, Cult of Personality, yeah. Vivid, I guess, was the name of that yeah. record. Yeah, in South Africa, we got a lot of American music. I mean, there was a lot of local stuff, too. And I think a lot of local uh, kind of grooves, influences, kind of found their way to me without me even knowing. It's not like I was very um, aware of African music, like going out to see it necessarily. But I do know that I was very aware of those grooves and stuff when it came to like those kind of influences actually while I was I think it was right after I was out of college when I was first back in Nashville for a minute before I moved to Atlanta I played with this um, black saxophone player named OJ Ekamodi and he was uh, all African traditional African some Cuban African style grooves so all of a sudden I was like I think the one white guy in the band and really, I don't know, I, I can't even remember how that came together, but 
I remember all of a sudden here I was in Nashville playing this true African stuff with dancers and backup singers and the horns and the whole thing. And, uh, and somehow it was completely natural for me. Like nothing seemed odd about it, you know? So what an education. Yeah. Another, yeah. Another little like weird tidbit of that, that, it's not like that comes into play very often, but it, it was there. You know, yeah, it was yeah. cool. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, so so the Bruce thing lasted about two, two and a half years and then it was band dynamics that, that I was I was ready to leave. And I came back to Nashville because I wasn't that was the biggest crossroads, I think, LA or Nashville. And I knew some people in LA, but I really had better friends in Nashville that had moved up the ladder while I'd been gone and I thought this is a better place for me to find the next step. And within about a month of moving back, I uh, a guy that I had met through uh, a, a guy that I played with in high school um, was the band leader for um, an artist named Cindy Thompson, who at the time had just had a big number one, and she was like a young pop country um, phenom. And so I played with Cindy for a year or so and loved it. I mean, I came straight from being in the jam band scene with Colonel Bruce moving back to Nashville and all of a sudden I'm on this pop country gig playing with loops doing all which I'd never done before you know opening up for Alan Jackson and blah blah blah, blah all these other people and Cindy was awesome and the band was great and the playing was I got to use like a lot of my sort of James Taylor style things that I really loved in that gig and and I also thankfully was good friends with some of those folks so uh, a guy named Bruce Wallace who had Bruce Bruce right who Bruce. Was, was Cindy's band leader talk about a talent it's incredible I've written with him he's I think he's such a talent yeah yeah such a smooth acoustic player smoothest acoustic player I know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and he uh but thankfully he was super cool and loved the fact that I had never listened to country before <laughs> and playing on this country gig and also loved the fact that I would go for it all the time but also was cool enough to be able to say, hey, maybe we pull it back a little bit after, you know, because I was, I was young and ready to go, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'd just come off the jam band scene where anything was yeah. viable, sure. you know, so the Cindy gig was great, and I was sad that that when it ended, and then I kind of did some touring in the country scene, met Mindy Smith through the local thing around Nashville, who's just such a phenomenal sort of uh folky Americana but even more than that kind of art like great singer-songwriter toured with her played on some of her records and that kind of started the like okay I really want to just play on records I I mean at that point in Nashville there was a much thicker line between guys that were on the road and guys that recorded it's a different vibe it, yeah, well, it is a different thing. I mean, they're, you know, a lot of times the, the road guys would get pissed they weren't playing on the records, but they'd never really spent time in the studio. And and there's a way to play in the studio and a way to play live. And they're, and totally un, different un, things. Until you can understand the yeah. difference, you can't just mm-hmm. be expected to come in and, mm-hmm. and make a, a recording sound good, even if you're killing it on stage, you know. So I spent time trying to get into the recording thing, you know, at the at the cost of gigs. I mean, gigs would come up and it would be like, I don't... I'm going to stay here and not make any money right now instead of going out and making whatever on the road. That's a tough call. It was a tough call. But I knew I wanted to do both. And I knew that I would never get to be doing the recording side if I kept touring. You know, but if I got the recording thing going, I could still tour. You know, and that's sort of how I've, where I've ended up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. yeah. How many records do you think you've played on? 
I have no honestly. Let's call no your idea. union rep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surely there's a way we can find this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot. I've played on a lot. Yeah, yeah. And some of them, some of them have been heard by 15 people, and some of them are heard by a lot more. You know, it's just I've. And I, sometimes the ones that are heard by 15 people are better than the. They can be some. I've, there are some. I have recorded some great records that I listen to that are on Spotify that I listen to that I know have not. I don't know how many people have heard them, but they, they were not anything big. They didn't have yeah. a single that dropped <laughs> or whatever, but the record was still great. Yeah. You know? But then, thankfully, I will say the records that are the biggest records I've played on, I think, are also actually cool records. I, I'm not... There is nothing that's out there and big that I can say that I'm embarrassed that I played on, you know, which, sure. is, which is, I think, is fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. My name is Big Nuda. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Change up some letters. No, no, that's not me. I know. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you decide... Do you have a, you have a child? I do. Oh, you have two kids. Yep. I've got a seven-year-old girl, Addie, and a two-year-old boy, Oliver. Oh, look at you. You've yeah. been busy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know about I don't even know how that happens. It happens. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll show you a chart later. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll explain everything. Different interview, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll explain everything. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Let's get off of music for a second. Yeah, sure. How's fatherhood? It's so much more involved than I thought it would be in a, in a great way though you know when people say it's the hardest and most awesome thing you know that whole thing and you're like yeah okay sure whatever somehow when you're in it it actually is <laughs> because it's because you don't always have the answers and the answers are important so you're like you're sitting there like well I know that I shouldn't have said this thing but I also need to make sure that this point gets across but I don't you know there's all these I don't know. There's all these ways of having to go around communicating with a seven-year-old brain, you know, which is still figuring itself out and still kind of how, you know, it's all, it's all important. And yet some of it is taken with a grain of salt, you know? So I, it's awesome though. I, I really love it. And, and, um, you know, obviously Ollie being just two is he's sweet and cute, but as he comes up, it'll be interesting to see how, he, I, I don't know, just how how it all works. I love that Addie has been able to come to some gigs here and there. You know, she hasn't really. She actually has been in the studio a couple times, but obviously for just brief amounts of time. You know, my my partner Ashley is is amazing at at being able to cover all that ground when I'm because, you know, like session time is is sort of a non negotiable. I can't be like. I know it starts at 10, but I've got a kid thing. Can I be there at 10.30? Like, no, you actually got to be here at 9.30 to make sure we got drum sounds and whatever. And that, and that just is what it is. Fortunately, I have a partner that is willing to cover that. If if something comes up, she can take care of, of, of that. And, you know, we, we somehow work out a way. You That's know? good teamwork. Yeah, yeah, it's what it is. Yeah, for sure. When you realized a daughter, did you panic? Just because of being a daughter? Uh, no, I really wanted a girl. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would have been happy with a boy first as well, but I, inside I knew I really wanted a girl. Okay. And so when I girl found dad. out it was a girl, it was, yeah, it was awesome. And, I mean, she and I definitely have a special connection. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really sweet. Yeah. I love, you know, I've been this last um, year and a half, I'm fortunate to have this big gig, we'll talk about it a little bit or whatever, yeah. but... But having one of the coolest moments was having her on the side of the stage, seeing it because it's because she's so 
she's so into it and she sings along with the songs and just her seeing her look at such a big crowd and like kind of take it all in was kind of a cool experience some of the biggest me. crowds ever probably yeah yeah as yeah. well it's pretty neat yeah 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 it, remind me who you were playing with before you got this gig Nobody. Oh, I, I mean, I've been I've played with Jewel over the years. Um, I, I I started I played on a record for Jewel years ago, and then not nothing to do with that at all. I got called to do a gig for her at some point, maybe twenty sixteen ish or something like that, and then kept doing gigs for her. You know, and, and I've done a few of her Christmas tours and stuff. She's she's awesome. She's such a great artist to work for. Super easygoing. Sometimes artists are not so easy going. There's a definite split between like the artist realm or the artist uh, perception and sort of everybody else's perception. And to find artists that you can actually have a conversation with and get along with and text randomly or whatever, it's, it's, it's few and far between. And I happen to be, I happen to be around two of them, <laughs> you know, fairly frequently, which is, which is great, you know? And so Jewel is, uh, I still go play with her. I went, I did a gig with her a couple, two, three months ago or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a weekend with her. So, um, it's always fun and I'm, I'm always there for it. So, but no, but before this, this Chesney gig, which is what I'm doing now, surprise, surprise um, I, uh, I hadn't actually done any real touring other than the Jewel thing for a decade. Mm. Yeah. I, because I've been, you know, the session stuff have been going really well, and um, I'll go and do weekends here and there with people or whatever, but nothing more than that. How did the Kenny Chesney thing come about? I knew, I know pretty much, I have known pretty much everybody in his band for kind of a long time, uh, just from the Nashville scene. You know, pretty much everybody had plays on sessions and stuff. And so when that position became available, I got a call um, from from John, the guitar player. And is the f- that the band leader? No. Oh. <clears throat> no, but, but the, everybody, uh, Wyatt is the band leader, and Wyatt had said to everybody, hey, put down uh, two or three guys or, or girls, whatever, that you feel like would be good fits for this band. I found out afterwards that I had ended up on everybody's list, which is very sweet, which is awesome. And so John had called me and said, hey, well, it's funny, he called me and left a message, and I thought it was about playing on his daughter it was something to do with his daughter because savannah conley is his daughter great artist and i played on her first record a long time ago so and it was right around christmas of of whenever that was 21 and um i was, I was kind of forgetful and slow and i just never got back to him and i think he called me back like a week later so i was like hey man and oh i saw his name come up. i was like oh shit i forgot to call john back so, so uh, that was um, in the heat of uh, pandemic times too, it was the heat it? of pandemic yeah and so everything was kind of slow and whatever you know it wasn't anyway I pick up and he's and he mentions that this would I be interested in the gig and honestly I didn't know Kenny I didn't know what his vibe was the only thing I knew is that yes he was very successful and a guy in a hat singing country songs and that's not necessarily my vibe so although I was interested just to see what it was I, it wasn't like I was chomping at the bit to get it another close friend of mine Kenny Greenberg who's a big session uh, player in Nashville has been doing that gig for a long time the Chesney gig so I called him and we had a long conversation about it and he kind of told me the ins and outs and now I was starting to get a little more interested in it and then I found out there had to be auditions which I wasn't overly psyched about but I was like I understand Chesney's only ever really had one drummer for his whole live career and he started young Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, pretty yeah, much. That, he's one of the most successful of the country, and maybe all musicians everywhere. Kenny. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't know these stats about about Kenny, but there's no one that has played more stadium shows in the United States than Kenny Chesney. 
And, and when you think about that, yeah, yeah, and and think about like when I say nobody, it's like not in country, but period, yeah. like the Stones, that's a big deal. Any artist, yeah, you know, and yeah. So anyway, I go down the road, I do the auditions begrudgingly. Ashley was was very much the, uh, the the one behind me that said, just do the audition, don't be all snobbish about it and whatever, ego, whatever. And I'm happy I did because I was when I look back on that, and it hasn't even been two years. I mean with all that going on I couldn't have been more mistaken or naive I should say about what this the Chesney camp was all about it's an absolute beautiful group of people family absolute family excellent work, work ethic incredible work ethic. Yeah. And, and and Kenny is another artist that I can I could text right now and he'll and he'll probably text me back within five minutes and he's just that dude he's he's become a real friend you yeah. know and and that's incredibly rare when it comes to artists that you work with particularly on that level you know he probably would not remember this mm-hmm. but I accidentally texted Kenny Chesney when I first lived in Nashville oh yeah years and years and years ago because I was doing work for Skip Ewing uh-huh. who of course wrote a bunch of songs for Kenny and with Kenny. Yeah. And so I kept track of Skip's phone. You know, it was basically my phone had all of Skip's contacts so right. that if I had to arrange for him to have a co-write or, or whatever. And it was the day after my birthday and my friends, we had gone to Lyme. Do you remember Lyme? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's long gone. But and they took me out for quite the birthday. Mm-hmm. And... The next day, I was sitting in Frothy Monkey, and I was sending a text to everybody to thank them for coming out and, you know, whatever. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, great, great, great. And then I get this random, happy birthday, who is this? Oh, that's <laughs> and, awesome. And it, was, it turned out to be Kenny Chesney. That's amazing. But that interaction actually... Um, is the basis for a, a film I'm writing. Oh, yeah? It's pretty hilarious. Awesome. That was how it started. Who's going to play Kenny? I got to know. <laughs> well, it'll be, it'll, it's, it's a different character, oh, but it's, it's a text About that is that sent. Kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. But, uh, which is pretty funny. I'm sure he was very gracious about the about this random stranger <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I yeah. didn't abuse the power either That's, yeah obviously which is important yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah it's pretty funny that's awesome yeah. yeah how often do you go out on tour so I started with them at the beginning of last year 22 and we did like a mid-April to end of August cross the country stadium tour mm-hmm. and then um, this year, and so yeah, then we were down at the end at the end of August, and then this year we went out and did a little spring tour that was I don't know twenty five dates or something from be- in the middle of March till end of May, and then that was and then we did some weekends and stuff like some Saturday night festival kind of things or whatever, but that was it. I mean, so we've been off for a little while, and then next year we'll be. Rumor has it, I should say, <laughs> will we'll be another uh, big uh, sort of run across the stadium tour thing again. But even that, I He's mean... He's got to fill all Jimmy Buffett's shows now. <laughs> I know, well... They don't yeah, have a leader, they're I leaderless. Know, I know, <laughs> They're going to have to convert God. to becoming the Kenny it suck- <laughs> Yeah, it's like, it sucks that that, 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 that icon... I was so it's, sad. Oh, so I played sad. his music all day. Yeah, day. yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, terrible. Because it's, it's, it's so rooted in memories that I had as a kid. That's right. And my big brother and his friends all playing guitar and playing those songs. And yeah. just, it's such a, 
yeah, it was sad. It's sad, yeah. So yeah, so that's. And, but even then, I mean, I'm. I think I'm pretty fortunate because on a busy year, we'll do 45 dates. And, and I got to say, like, I would not have thought about myself. You know, when the session thing first took off, I love the idea of doing live and and recording and doing. Oh, I like playing drums. I like be, I like making music with people, whether it's in in the recording world in the way that that's done. I love the relationship that happens on stage too. Yeah, it's beautiful. And this this band right now, the K Man, is just I mean, stellar musicians. And Are these so the biggest audiences fun. that you've ever Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean I've I've maybe done a festival in the past where we were playing for hundred thousand people or some something like that, but never on a constant where like every every stadium we get to is if if it's not sold out, it's really close, and it's a whole lot of people. And everyone know? knows every word. Everyone knows every word. Everybody's singing along. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and the fact that that guy commands that and has done for yeah. however many years, you know, it's incredible. Yeah, I, yeah, in my mind, I think of Taylor Swift as being a marketing genius. She's always had such an excellent head for business from incredible. really the get go. And I have friends who have played on her early, early, early stuff, like the demos. Oh, you did too. I mean, I played on all those first records. Oh, you did. Okay, and and the word on the street was that she always knew exactly who she was what her sound was what she wanted right. and could command that in a room she- i'll say so i was the beginnings of recording to jump back for a second i met a guy named nathan chapman who was oh, yeah. ended up being her producer um but at the time he was doing basement demos and had met me because i again at the beginning i just wanted to get into recording so i bought a very starter recording rig super amateur set up mics in a room and that was it um but he liked the vibe and so we started working together and then he started doing more and more demos and one of those demos ended up being well with liz rose who yes. co-wrote um some of those early taylor hits and so she brought taylor in to demo one of these songs and taylor really loved the vibe that we had and that's how the beginnings of her first record started she had already started a record with another much more well-known Nashville producer and but really liked the way Nathan worked and really liked the we just recorded everything small band me and Tim Marks was playing bass Chad Carlson was engineering and Nathan and that was it and then Nathan would play everything else afterwards like build up the track and so that's how her first record came together and because that record did so well and because she loved it so much the exact same thing happened for the second record as well we went in and did Fearless that way too and then and and the, the story I was getting to was that she, I remember even on that first record, working on a song, going through the song, and we'd get done with the take. And in my mind, I would think like, well, I wonder how she's going to think about this. I know that I think we could do one better one, but if she likes it, she likes it. And we didn't. These were almost demos. I mean, we knew that we were supposedly going to be making a record. Nobody thought anything was going to happen beyond what we were doing right there. As fifteen-year-old artists, I mean, brand Liz, new label, Liz took a chance brand new. People, they, they brought Taylor around, and people wouldn't ride with her because she was young, and they're like, "Oh, who's this kid?" That's right. <laughs> they're they're Did, kicking themselves. It's, it's really incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think she got turned down by just about every label in town. You yeah. know, it's it, really phenomenal. Classic story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and I remember after a take like that. Taylor would be the one be like, yeah, I liked it, but I think we got a better one. And she was 15. Mm-hmm. And I gave Commanding her... Commanding adult, mostly men, sorry, yeah, yeah, in, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the room. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So at that age, even, I knew that, like, wow, she's, she's really got something. Yeah. yeah. And then I was, hey, you know what? I was just thankful to be a part of... I ended up doing the first four records with her, and 
And now my daughter is so all over it. I mean, it, uh, it, it, we cannot be in the car without her wanting to listen to it. I think we've moved past the first, the same four songs, <laughs> but, but but there's but pretty much any. She was like, okay, well, I'm. You can pick whichever one as long as it's on a Taylor record. <laughs> so it's That's you cute. know. So we listen to a lot of Taylor Swift now, but yeah. it is sweet because yeah. when I was recording those records a long time ago. I could not have imagined my daughter singing along to him, you know, so that's kind of neat. That is cool. Yeah. That is really cool. Well, what I was going to say is that from an early age, she had a very good understanding of marketing and who she was and what she wanted. And I think that Kenny Chesney also had that in him the oh genius as far as marketing and who, what he wanted and what his vision was and st- yeah. stayed stayed the course regardless i think they both have they both yeah. have they both have um been able to move with their careers and continually go to the next stage before the career even gets there mm-hmm. kenny is so like i don't know i, I know t- uh, the only things i know about taylor's world are through friends i know that are still working with her but I see Kenny showing up to make sure that the lighting is exactly what it needs to be. It's like, well, I like this shade of orange when we go to this part of the song, or this video needs to be this when we go to this thing. You know, he is a part of every piece of the show that we do. You know, even when he's in the song and he's killing it out there, running around and singing, he's still paying attention to all the stuff that's happening around him. You know, it's I don't know how he does it. It's it's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah. They're just next level. They, yeah, really. Really are. They're next level. And yeah. it, it, I, I think back again to Taylor and that when she wanted to shift out of being country and go into a more pop sound, and everyone's like, you're going to kill your career, everything. That's right. But yeah. to her credit, she stayed her course, right? She could have been like, oh my God, yeah, you're right. I'm going to listen to these other people yeah. who supposedly know more than I do. But she blazed her own trail. But you know what? She always has. Yeah. I mean, the thing that happened when at the very beginning of her career. So she got, you know, didn't get signed by any other label in town. Scott Borchetta got, you know... With her dad, did a, yeah. Did a deal. And, yeah. and then they started recording this record. And then Taylor met Nathan and, and like that. And Scott was like, well, yeah, but we're already recording this thing. And she said, no, I don't want to do that anymore. And, I mean, what artist gets to... Not even gets to, but has the... The whatever inner the metal thing. I call that yeah, metal M E T T L E. Yeah, to just say nope, this is not working for me. This is better. Yeah, and I want to do this. Yeah, and she was absolutely right. And she worked on her craft. I think when she started, she was a kid, right? Her voice wasn't really mature oh, yet. Yeah, she was figuring it out. Yeah, she was figuring it out, and that not only. I'm glad that the world gave the patience for it, but that she gave herself the patience because yeah. a lot of us don't have that, right? We yeah. don't. We kind of like, oh, I can't get from suck to really great in enough in a quick enough time. Yeah, I'm abandoning ship. It's almost like she had no doubt that even if she she could take the criticism and have no doubt that she would get there. That takes a special person. It does, and yeah. she did all the things along the way. I remember, I think when we were doing the Fearless record, or maybe it was the one after that. I can't remember when CMA Fest was happening right in the midst of while we were recording. And one of the days she went to the stadium. They had somehow gotten the use of the stadium and they parked her bus in the middle of the stadium. And she stayed there for like five hours or something, uh, signing autographs. 
she didn't like play or anything, but people could come in and it was packed and they would, and she just sat there and talked to everybody and signed all the autographs and all the sort of stuff. Yeah, because regardless, she also knows that without those fans, who, by the way, would take a bullet for her. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I know. <laughs> as, I, mean, I don't know if Kenny's fans are as intense, but. Yeah, I mean, some of them are pretty intense, yeah. but I don't know. I think the Taylor thing has definitely that's, gone to another level. That's next level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you. We had tacos in LA a, a while a yeah. year ago. Your mom's husband, yeah, yeah, creator of Jim Stalin, a creator of Thanos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. So it, it's it kind of an interesting thing because as, as we are both artists doing the thing, you know, he had, he spent his life being perfectly popular and and well known in that artist community. Uh, having worked for DC and Marvel over the years, created Thanos many, many years ago. What a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And had been in that realm. And then all of a sudden, these um, Avengers movies just took off. The Marvel movies in general, right? Just completely took off being the biggest grossing movies out there. Before Barbie, of course. But, um, hey, Barbie! <laughs> and, and, um, and so all of a sudden, Jim became a superstar because Thanos was such a huge thing. It was just interesting to see how his world changed from, and like I said, being perfectly fine and doing well doing his thing to being, you know, the guy, you know, for such, for the last, uh, you know, quite a few years now, this has been a big thing. So, well, yeah, Thanos it's pretty is a interesting. big deal. It's a really big deal, yeah, 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 which is really awesome. Was he pleased, do you know, if uh, how, how they did the movies? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, 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 he really, uh, and in fact, I think he even played a, uh, he was a a little role in one of in one of the movies because they liked they liked doing that kind of thing. Yeah, Stanley is always. Yeah, Stanley's always doing that thing too. Yeah, that's right. Rest his soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanos became not only a bad guy but in a way an antihero. Yeah, well. completely, completely. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he was. I mean, obviously, he was he was happy with how it was portrayed, and then he, of course that led to all kinds of other opportunities too, which. I'm not exactly sure what's going on at the moment, but I do know that like his life changed big time as a result of that, you know. And it's cool to it is cool to see that you could say like oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I'm here I am turning this age whatever it is and like what's the is anything even going to happen with blah blah blah. And and in this in this particularly in the arts in the arts careers as they are anything as long as you're putting yourself out there working at it trying to make trying to do the thing that you love whatever that is to the to the purest of your whatever you know i mean i think you you stray too far from the course and you may not be doing yourself the best service in in what it is that you're actually after i think i think that jim was was good at keeping on what he wanted to do and and this may not have ever happened the the whole marvel crazy movie success that if that hadn't been if that hadn't exploded like it did then it would have thanos may have been in a movie and it might have been a a, a midline grossing movie and that might have just been whatever it just so happens that 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 style of movie became the biggest the biggest movies out there his character was in there and that meant that as as an artist his status raised we went through the roof you know so we don't know awesome. we don't know which doors are going to open we have no idea absolutely we have no idea the way and the way these things come around there's just no 
you just can't plan for it. It's not the thing you can say, well, if, if I do this and I do this, then I'm guiding myself down this road and then I could possibly meet this person. It doesn't really work like that in this world. And like, there've been plenty of times that I've done gigs in scenarios where I knew that either some other big person was going to be there or it would potentially lead to blah, blah, blah. And I almost never did. If I thought about it, it almost never did. The things that did lead to those next things came out of nowhere. <laughs> and just know? showing up to your life. That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. No, I was still doing what I do because yeah. I love doing it. There was never a question about that. I remember I worked with a producer a few years ago, a big legendary producer in Nashville. has been there forever. And I remember him telling a story in the studio about an artist that he brought to Nashville to record. And they, I somehow got on talking about, like, um, what was what was your... Um, like what? What's your backup plan? You know, if music doesn't happen, and he was like, "I, I never had a backup plan. I never thought about anything else." And that's the first time, even that I'd even thought about backup plan. I never had a backup plan either. Somehow, music was going to work. I didn't necessarily know how. I, you know, I made decisions based on where I felt like I wanted to go, based upon careers of other drummers that I heavily admired maybe or just what i felt like i liked you know i know that i'm not the kind of drummer that could just tour with an artist and just be out doing that thing unless it was really the thing or i was a, an instrumental part of what the whole was you know i didn't i just didn't take those things i've been somehow i've been fortunate enough to say no nope, i don't want to do that and i'm just not going to do it you know Obviously, you know how to adjust your drumming to fit whatever music you're playing. But do drummers have? Always wonder this. Do drummers have a like a fingerprint, like a, a style that's really yeah. uniquely their own? Oh yeah. Yeah. I um, I, uh, I think the ones, uh, you know, I think the ones that think about having a voice. You know, um, I don't think every musician necessarily thinks about that. Yeah, I guess maybe you don't have to think about it to have it, but but I do think that it's a. I think it's an important thing. I think too many people get thrown into the. You play drums. I need drums on this. You'll be the drummer on this, and that's what that thing is. And that's fine. It's making a career. You're earning money, but it's not. You're not getting called for you necessarily. You're getting called because you can provide this service. And although that's part of it, for me, it me- it means so much more when. I'm the person they want because of the thing that I do, and that's it. And and therefore, if I can't do the session, they, listen, they, sometimes you have to do what you have to do, and they'll go with somebody else, and that's fine. But the best compliments I can get is when I get a, well, when can you do it? You know, cause that, because we want to have you on it. That, to me, is like, well, you've just shot to the top of the list. You know, I've been very fortunate since meeting Mr. Chesney. Now I'm playing on his records as well, and the... And some of the biggest, the com- I mean, it's just so complimentary to me that he feels like I need to be there for him to do this thing. Because how, how much value is that in your art that you're bringing when somebody else can say, no, I want you for this thing? You know, that, that to me is the, that's the goal. Yeah. It's not always going to be like that, but boy, it's great when it is. It makes up for all the drumming jokes you've heard over your lifetime. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, boy. And there's there's a lot. There are so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's true. It's, um, I, I, feel like, um, I feel like there's a line between we do this as a career, but we do this out of love, you know? And there's and somehow you can, you've got to find where that, all that meets. I mean, I've often said that it takes a little bit of insanity too 
completely. Because this is not an easy road. There are way more pitfalls than there are shiny golden apples hanging from trees. So Mm -hmm. you have to really, again, that metal to find it in yourself to keep going. It's freaking hard. It's hard. There's a lot of gut punches. And, you know, social media hasn't made it any easier, (laughs) you know. Maybe one of the things that it hopefully forces you to do is believe in the thing that you do so that even when you're not getting called for the thing or and i mean the thing that social media does is and i know everybody feels this way is you see the thing that happened that you weren't called for and you're like what the but i did that for this person before and they they loved everything about it now they didn't call me for this next thing and now i'm seeing it you know if i just had not known about it it wouldn't have mattered but now i know so you know and it hurts it hurts so and that i don't think that that never goes away but what i think can help digest that pain is knowing that you have a thing that people do love and do call you for and you can't account for everybody's actions or why their choices their decisions why they decided to go with whoever they did on whatever what i mean it's not at no point do i really feel it was like huh i should call nick for no i'm not going to call nick because you know i don't feel like that was that's normally a part of the scenario it's more just like I saw this guy. I'm going to call this guy. <laughs> and that's what happens, you know. Sure. It's almost like that dog, like squirrel, squirrel. Also, <laughs> you know? The thing about Nashville, and maybe it's everywhere, is if you're not in someone's immediate vision, yeah. they it's not that they're forgetting, but it's like you don't exist because they're worried about their own stuff. And so if you're not in front of them... Everybody's got their own things they're trying to fight through and make happen and get out there and whatever the thing is, you know. And it's not to say that you then happen to run into them at the wherever, restaurant, market, blah, 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 whatever, and then you happen to get a call like a week later or something. It's happened, you know, that kind of thing. Are you fine? (laughs) I keep hitting your foot. You happen, you know, that's all it takes is... And that's the whole thing. Like, it, it takes being out there. It takes doing the things. Not because you feel like the thing is going to lead to the next thing. Because you love doing the thing. That's why you do it. You continue to do it because you love it. And then as a result of that, at some points, it leads to the next thing. You know? Mm-hmm. But you can't account for it. You just have to keep doing it. And if you don't love it, then just don't keep doing it. Do something. Way better to do something else. And not and nothing wrong with... I know plenty of people that have left... I mean, geez, over COVID. When, when it was just like, well, you know, struggling, struggling along or even just gotten to a point where it's like, I don't know that I love this as much anymore. COVID was the great equalizer. I'm just going to wipe everything off the table... Now, if you still love it, keep going. But this is a great time to think about doing something else if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I could, I couldn't blame anybody for saying I don't want to do this anymore. I've had so many friends quit, and I said, oh, "Tell me your secret." Yeah, because it yeah. is. It's. I wouldn't say it's quite addiction isn't the right word, but there's just something that's in me mm-hmm. that I can't not do it. That's right. I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. And I can't even put it, I can't articulate what that is. or how, You can't explain it to what I, the civilians, they don't understand. Yeah. Like, no, why? you're absolutely right. <laughs> why? That's right. I do think it is a little bit of an addiction, but not. But it's not a negative addiction. I, I think that there is, it, listen, I think it would be negative if I hadn't really done anything playing drums. I just knew I loved playing drums and I was you know in debt and in whatever and it just wasn't doing anything and there is a point there is a life responsibility point of okay maybe this is not what i do 
as my thing, even if I love playing, you know, and then you move into doing something else. I have been super fortunate. And, and I do think, I mean, yes, it's hard work, but I love doing it. So it doesn't seem as hard work, but I have constantly worked on my craft, but I've also been very fortunate to have been in those positions, maybe because I've put myself there, uh, you know, maybe because I had no problem making that call when it needed to be made or making that decision to do something different when that needed to be done. Even at times where I thought like, okay, well, the Taylor thing was huge. This is going to be a tough shadow to work out of, you know, well, out from, I should say, because it's so huge. Like, I mean, obviously she's so huge now, but, but even on the Fearless record, by the time that, like the first record was big, the second record was really, really big. And then it just went from there. And I didn't want to have my career defined by playing on those Taylor records. Like I'm, I am a drummer that or I should say debatable musician. <laughs> no, no, I'm a drummer that, <laughs> that, that loves playing on all different kinds of music. And, and the last thing I wanted was like, oh, that's the guy that played on the Taylor records. I'm like, yeah, but I'm also the guy that can do all this other stuff. Like when I'm playing with Kenny now live, it's not at all the kind of stuff that's on the Taylor record. I mean, so but I think even Taylor would say she's not the Taylor that she was. And, and absolutely give her the opportunity to be all the tailors she wants to be give thank goodness Nick, she, yeah, yeah, her, yeah give Nick yeah. all the opportunities to be all the Nicks that you have in you that's and same right with Kenny and anyone who's I think a, it's a lot harder with musicians though because we don't often get the opportunity to have all the stuff that we are always out there at the top of the the listening public you know what I mean mm. Taylor if she wants to do the the, the folklore record or and then she wants to do another pop record whatever it is is being heard by all the millions of her fans all the time so the fact that she gets to be all those things is awesome for her but also much easier sure. for everybody else to see sure there's certain things that i love to do uh musically that aren't just aren't going to be the thing that most people see so therefore if there's a if if there's anybody that's saying oh yeah nick that guy that played on those records you know the mm. one cool thing about the Kenny thing now is that it's like okay yeah but now you see there's this other big guy that I'm doing a completely different thing for you know like sure. the, the, the concerts are as big rock as as any show I've played I'm hitting harder than any other time live that I've played with anybody and I've played with some pretty heavy rock bands Kenny stuff is like my hands are in shredded and my I'm exhausted. Uh, he rocks. It's he rocks huge. Them. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really fun. Yeah. Uh, that's part part of what I love about it is the. It's like is, Garth Brooks. Bar Garth Brooks is a pretty rocket show. Or? He is. I mean, he is. But I seriously, I don't know that it. It's uh, rocking the candle to Kenny really? on that on that level. <laughs> we are. I mean, three electrics up front. Yeah. Big, big rock. Yeah. And I mean, They're I. Rocking. I uh, part of the the um, challenge for me is the physical challenge. You know getting older i'm just like i have to kind of keep keep it together and and work up to that stamina for those oh, shows yeah. because the endurance it's, needed to be a drummer it's a thing you yeah. know and it, and playing gigs around town or even sessions doesn't require yeah. nearly the same sort of thing but but it's that's what's part of the super fun part of it, it is you know? a cue to a picture of you dressed like rocky and instead of hitting the sides of beef you're just drumming on them <laughs> the sides of that would be awesome see me training in like a meat locker with <laughs> yeah I should do that that'd be a great little video shoot <laughs> like with a headband yeah, on exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. tell people how they may find you Instagram is the easiest way just my name Nick Buto and there's a 
silly little picture of me, I think. Honestly, that's honestly the easiest. I don't really look at Facebook that much, except for Marketplace. So if you have something to sell, sure. And then, obviously, if I'm playing somewhere, come say hi. Of course. If I, you do, I, do you, you, so Nick Buda, that's B-U-D-A. B-U-D-A, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and my email is easy, too. It's just nick at nickbuda.com oh, if anybody well, there you wants go. to email me. So you have a yes. website, too. I do have a website. I will say it is old, and I am, I, you know what? This fall, it is getting updated. Okay. I'm the worst at that stuff because I just, it's like I want somebody to, I want it to be up to date, and I want it to have all this stuff, but I, I, I don't care as much as I should about keeping all that information up there. That's why Instagram is so easy for me because it's like I can have a picture, I can post it, and it's fine, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I just, I'm not as, I'm not as, not even that I'm not as savvy about it. My care is not at the place of making sure that everything's online <laughs> as it should be. And uh, maybe it's my age or maybe it's just me just not being that kind of person. I'm not the most self-harrying character, but, but, that's okay. But I like meeting people. You're a drummer. If anybody <laughs> came up to a show and said, I heard the interview on the Hey Human thing with Susan, blah, 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 I think that'd be, that's awesome. Whenever somebody be comes badass. up I with a reference, that. I love, I'm like, oh, that's so cool that you heard this thing. Because, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That, that would be awesome. That is. That would be cool. You'll have to let me know. I f- you know I would. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so... Uh, I think it's great. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I'm so glad that you have all these really wonderful... I've known you a long time now. Yeah, we've known each other a long time. Yeah. I, don't mean, I can't even think about how many years. But I, yeah, 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 long time. So yeah. it's just... It's great. It's great. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm so... Honestly, when you asked me to do this, I, I love this podcast. I love that it's... I love that it's not based on a specific... Like a like a, a, a music focus or drum focus, it's it's a person focus, and and that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank really you. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Bye. Bye. That was great. Awesome. You're the best. <laughs> Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.